You know, so so some love Nordics, some are just terrified of it. And like, look, I I roll my eyes as much as anyone uh, at people who are who are averse to Nordics. However, it's not worth it if some athletes are just totally freaked out by them. Find another way, um, and definitely still train eccentrically, but find another way. Um, so I really liked. Um, easy up, slow down, um, reverse hypers. So single leg reverse hypers. So, you, you know, if you have like a belt loop and you can put two feet in to raise it and one, one foot to lower it, I really like that one. Um, so the manual, uh, like prone, prone one. So you take an athlete and you, you can take them from 45, you can take from 90 or just take them from about 20 degrees and, and push their heel into the ground and, and have them resist you as, as they're extending, um, at the knee. And that one, uh, we had a star high jumper who was very fragile on lifting who said that that made her feel better and more confident out there than any other exercise she's done. That was sports performance coach and consultant Jake Schuster speaking on hamstring training and alternatives to the Nordic hamstring exercise in the physical preparation of athletes. You're listening to the Just Fly Performance Podcast. Today's episode is brought to you by Simply Faster. Simply Faster is an online athletic performance technology shop distributing items such as the free lap timing system, gym aware, K-Box, 1080 Sprint, and the Speed Mat. I've gotten many of these items from Simply Faster and can confidently say that they make today's best training technology available to everybody. The free lap timing system has revolutionized both my practices and my athlete assessments allowing me to look at the 10-meter fly capability of dozens of athletes in a matter of seconds. It is wireless, compact, portable, and incredibly versatile. The K-Box and 1080 Sprint are fantastic tools for any coach looking to build speed, agility, and implement training scenarios that go beyond the traditional weight room. The 1080 Sprint is being used by great coaches training some of the fastest sprinters in the world, and it truly represents high-performance speed training. I can personally attest that Simply Faster's customer service is second to none, Christopher at Simply Faster responds quickly to queries, and anyone who makes a purchase from Simply Faster is in good hands. If you want to acquire some of the best high-tech training equipment available, stop by simplyfaster.com. That's simply with an I, faster.com. They are the future of coaching technology. Welcome to episode 109 of the Just Fly Performance Podcast. I'm your host, Joel Smith, and today on the line, we have sports performance coach, consultant and sports scientist Jake Schuster. Jake has an impressive resume and background and today our talk is going to revolve around speed training, things he's doing in the weight room and the force plates, testing, jump testing that define things we find that can define the fastest athletes. Obviously speed is speed and nothing replaces the track, under speed, over speed, special strength we do right there that's out in specific but everyone loves the weight room. We all want to know what are things in the weight room we can do that are the most specific transfer? Or how does jumping exactly, what parts of a jump transfer the most to speed and sprinting? And that's why I'm super stoked that I had Jake on the line for this one. Uh, he blew my mind with, uh, I mean, I, I was a strength coach for track and field, for, for university track and field specifically for some time. This being outside of actually being the, the track coach and doing the strength and conditioning for track and field. So Having those hats, I've always been interested in the underpinnings of a lot of these things. Jake has just this incredible use of the data and science and qualitative knowledge, pairing that to what they're seeing on the track and 
it's just awesome. Uh, you guys are going to really love this one. Uh, Jake's got a, a really cool resume. He's a uh, Boston native, and he's done internships with Cressy Performance, amongst others, as well as having worked with New Zealand Rugby. Amazing, amazing rugby program and culture there. He's been, a foreman, he's been the performance director at USA Field Hockey and most recently has been the track and field strength and conditioning coach for Florida State, uh, working directly with sprinters and hurdlers. He also does work in the sports science department there at Florida State uh, with uh, helping students with applied research projects. So all around, Jake's a super knowledgeable guy, and I always love talking with coaches, breaking down some of the raw, specific qualities that that uh, go with fast. And so a lot of us will ask, well, what's the what's the best exercise to get faster, right, in the, in the weight room? <laughs> Different apples and oranges, you might think, sometimes. But um, <clears throat> listen to this one, and you will be um, excited to hear the answer. It's uh, stuff that you actually have heard from other podcast guests. I won't say who. I'll have, you'll have to listen to find out. But it's just cool to see worlds collide, things come together. And really what makes an athlete fast is it, oh, you have to squat you know, 2.5 body weight or deadlift this or that and clean this. Um, speed's actually pretty simple, and, and when you hear about what the, the highest transferring things are, it kind of makes sense. So, uh, Also, Jake uh, is going to talk a lot about things like asymmetry. When, it, when is it fine, which is probably most of the time. <laughs> when do we need to change it? When do we need to intervene? Um, also, he's going to talk about eccentric training, like you taught, heard a little bit in the teaser there, isometric training concepts, how Jake does um, foster at, uh, general strength work, you know, quote unquote, general strength squats and deadlifts and those things in um, working with track athletes or field sport athletes and how that differs, as well as just the general differences and how do you go about programming when the goal is maximal top performance at a particular time versus staying robust for a longer period of time like uh, team sports, which you heard a little bit maybe in the Milan Shavanovich episode a few episodes ago. Uh, we're also going to talk Olympic lifts and velocity-based training, as well as a few other cool topics. So I really love doing this one. Uh, it was one as well where it's like I took notes, went through the editing process again, had some more thoughts and notes. And I can't, regardless of whether you're a track coach, strength, sports performance coach, or an athlete, this one has got a lot of really cool stuff that will not only make you think, but also just give you great direction in what transfers to these sports skills that we try to improve. So uh, on to episode 109 with a brilliant coach in Jake Schuster. Jake, welcome to the show. Thanks for being here today. Thank you for having me. Yeah, absolutely, man. Um, so for those of you people who might not know you, um, obviously I'm probably going to talk about you in the pre-roll. <laughs> we talked about this a little bit, but maybe the, the two-minute or less background of, of where you've been and uh, what you're doing in the industry right now. Yeah, all good. Um, I'm from Boston, Massachusetts. Grew up wrestling and playing lacrosse, your typical northeastern United States niche sports. Um, as with most in the field, wasn't good enough to go professional or Olympic in either. And so learned about the human body as best as I could. Um, moved abroad for the end of my undergraduate and was in Europe for about four years. Went back home briefly to intern under Eric Cressy and learn all about uh, throwing and uh, shoulder and posture. And then went over to start my doctoral work in New Zealand, working for New Zealand Rugby. After Rio, uh, moved back stateside to be around family at Florida State University, working after, uh, looking after track and field. Um, and now I'm here talking to you. Hey, I love it, man. It's, uh, 
it's really cool you had such a like diverse background you know wrestling lacrosse rugby track and field these are all sports that are pretty darn different uh which is all which is really cool i mean i think that and even like for me like going from track and field to working with aquatics you get these just like insane paradigm shifts and it really shapes um it shapes the big picture and so super excited to talk uh on a few of the contrasting things but also the things that run everything together so uh working with track and field recently what are some of the biggest lessons that you found or in working as a snc for track and field yeah sure i i think the biggest thing that surprised me was that um each athlete does what they do very differently. And I know it's a really obvious and cliche thing to say, cause we see that in team sports too, but I, I was just blown away how, you know, if, if you took the, you know, the dozen freaks, the dozen, you know, biggest aliens on the team, um, and you would, you would put them all through a battery of tests or a, or a series of tasks, they would have an incredible range of competence. You know, some of our, some of our freaks, uh, I, I actually taught how to do Olympic lifts to a very decent level in about 30 minutes. Some of them, you know, after a year of pretty focused work, still don't do them that well. Uh, you know, some jump through the roof in a counter movement jump and, and some are really average. And of course, you know, arousal and effort impact those things a lot. But, you know, we just assume that all these people, you know, produce power a certain way and, and so on and so forth. And it's, it's not that simple. Um, so I'd say I had more questions and answers right away. Yeah. I, uh, that's something I found interesting. Like when I was coaching track full time, uh, like shoot, it's almost like seven, eight years ago now, I I'd had kids that would just blow my mind. Like in the sense of like, I had a kid who, uh, now my kids weren't that fast. Like I'm talking like the 11, five and the hundred on the men's side. I mean, you probably women that are, running faster than that but like i had this guy who ran 11.5 and he used vertical jump was like 21 and i was like how do you even how does this how does this work like i don't understand this <clears throat> and i think I've, I've come to understand a little bit more i mean the kids didn't know how to jump plain and simple but uh, you would always see some of these things that would make you think but again if i if i looked at him again and how he probably produced that force really really quickly at least and had something going for him on that level but you you do see some things that, especially working with sprinters like I mean, I'm a guy who jumps way higher than I than I can run fast. I'm starting to learn and unpack that over the years. And then I'll see sprinters who can't jump as high as, high as I can necessarily, but they can just burn it up on the track. And so uh, it's it's always interesting to take a look at those inner workings of what, what's showing up in some of the quantitative aspects there. Yeah, correct. And, and, I, and I think we learned that... Um you know, there's task specificity and that's, that's so, that's such a strong factor for us is, is like you touched on this, some athletes who are just incredible at their event and not necessarily anything else. And, and that, that exists, um, you know, not just in the sprints, it exists in the 800, it exists in the high jump, you know? Um, and, and I think we try too hard to put people into boxes uh, with training, and it's just not that simple. You know, uh, for example, we had a 60-meter conference champ who just did not have a top end. He was just so big and strong. Um, and so you'd think, oh, he's probably not that powerful. He probably can't translate that strength. Well, guess what? He had the best rate of power development in, in the counter-movement jump on the force decks of any athlete in the university. So, you know, that doesn't necessarily add up. You, you can't make assumptions, and, and that's fun for what we do. Yeah. So speaking of that too, like rate of force development, things that you're looking at, uh, what are some of the qualitative things that you look for? Uh, if 
you're using four stacks, uh, velocity-based training perhaps, and the Olympic movements or various KPIs. Uh, what mm -hmm. are some of the big things that you've been looking for? In the, or just maybe that could even be obviously generally applied to those seeking to get faster at sprinting. Sure. Well, with um, with our sprinters to start the thing specific to athletics for those that are that are interested in that, um, we did look at at maximum velocity. So you know, doing your standard horizontal force power profile, um, and that we found that maximum velocity. You know, you can work backwards. It's not that difficult to figure out that if you want to break ten seconds in the one hundred, you're gonna need to just about scratch 12 meters per second on your top end um and you know we were able to get four of our guys over 11 and a half meters per second obviously there's a lot more that goes into it but you you can figure out what the ingredients you need um are for any any particular task on the broader monitoring side um in our counter movement jumps we really liked concentric impulse um relative rate of power development so rpd um, and eccentric mean relative power we found was our favorite one to just kind of look at how are they, how are they gathering to produce force? Um, the other big one that, that we found took some figuring out was when, we, when looking at asymmetries, we wanted both takeoff and landing asymmetries, which sounds obvious, but I was surprised how few were actually looking at that. And I, I hadn't thought of it as a fellow by the name of Jared Anflick, who works a bit with force decks, who taught me that, um, because I was amazed how jumping and landing strategies were so different in different athletes. Some would totally favor one side and some, some would push hard off one side and land hard on the other side. So that was a big one that we looked at, um, when addressing asymmetries, um, with that one, we just tried to look at the so-called stability of asymmetries as Dan Cohen, you know, calls it. So we're not just trying to get someone from 15% down to 10%. That might not even be a, a productive task. But what we do need to look at is if someone is normally at 10%, one day they show up at 20, ah. that's when we want to send them back to the physio table and say, hey, let's make sure you're all good to go out there and compete and hopefully not bust an ACL. <laughs> um, on the on the Nord board, which we used quite a lot, we looked at both in the traditional Nordic test um, and also three isometric tests. So two two on the Nord board and one using four stacks. Um, so a heel on the plate, uh, almost straight leg, a supine push, so a whole body push into a, a barbell that was too heavy to move. Um, so we just called that the supine um, straight leg push. I got that one from Coach Alex Natira. Yeah. Um, and then we just used a, a chest on 30 inch box, single leg and double leg uh, squeeze on the Nord board. I love it, man. I got to start. Out. So in the process of unpacking all this, I'm trying to like make some notes so I can kind of keep I know, up. With I know I'm name dropping horribly. I just want to give people credit where it's due. Oh, no. Right. <laughs> hey, right on. I, as soon as you said that thing, we're talking about that single leg push setup. I was just going yeah, back and thinking, yeah, hey, I think Alex Natera, like that's something I and I'm excited that you're doing it and that we can talk maybe about a little bit about that data. Um, and I want to uh, cover some of the the um, some of what you're talking about, like eccentric mean relative power and the supine push and some of those KPIs. Before I get to that, actually, you're talking about asymmetry. And this is something I think that um, a lot of people are talking about right now. I'm really interested in it. And I like that you brought up um, like the relative asymmetry, because in watching like and it's obvious in the jumps and throws and things like that, that there's asymmetrical patterns. But the sprints you watch champion sprinters, Usain Bolt has an asymmetrical stride. Noah Lyles' yeah. hands, you know, he's running 19, whatever, and his hands, two hands are doing two different things on the backstretch. It's crazy. Yeah. And so, and yeah, like we can drive ourselves nuts trying to, I guess, quote unquote, correct that. But, and, and I just had an episode coming out um, today just with Michelle Bowen talking about the postural restoration based principles of human asymmetry and how it's 
this is normal like this is not and and so yeah. the relative aspect i think that's really cool i, I mean was it that ought, i mean would in every athlete pretty much was showing some level of jump based asymmetry than you were saying yeah completely and i was surprised on the nord board our biggest asymmetry came in our horizontal jumpers uh, and that was not just one or two so across say seven or eight total um long jumpers and triple jumpers they had bigger asymmetries than our high jumpers and we had Whoa. again a decent enough sample size to really really raise our eyebrows at that one um but to what you said yeah look i, I am not a physio and i'm speaking merely on experience and and the yeah. limited research that's out there but i really think i would rather address asymmetries and try and find some stability through our asymmetries with postural re restoration principles and similar principles rather than addressing uh, limb deficiencies or muscular deficiencies because then we're you know we're we're playing with fire there you know it, it's almost cliche to say because people have tweeted it enough I think most would agree that we you know we could cause more damage or more injury risk by correcting muscular asymmetries um, than by leaving it alone so I'd almost rather just address postural integrity and make sure that that we're ticking boxes there than try and you know create a robot oh I I love that man it's like because yeah the common solution i guess if you're asymmetrical is oh do more pistol squats on the, your left leg because that's the weak leg right like like get yourself yeah. in balance quote unquote when yeah it's just it needs a sport and then proximal position and it's just a cool really cool that you're looking at that and integrating that i, I like that you're mentioning too like hamstring strength asymmetries and horizontal jumpers like long like so was it their um their takeoff leg hamstring that would be significantly stronger or the the penultimate yeah. leg yeah, the takeoff leg hamstring. And and that's a really interesting one. I want to learn or I, I want someone to point out research or do research to let us know as a field more about what's happening in a decelerative motion. Obviously, a normal human stride, there's a decelerative aspect. But in a really decelerative motion, what's happening with the hamstring? Because everyone thinks of the quad and the ankle and all that, mm. uh, you know, with a, a jump takeoff um, or – you know, in sports like basketball or AFL where someone's pushing you from behind and you're bracing because I feel like we're seeing more and more hamstring injuries happening in that instance, not just the typical end of swing phase in, in running. Um, so I want to know what's happening with the hamstring in that decelerative stomp um, yeah. because it was definitely that hamstring was stronger in all of our horizontal jumpers. That's cool. And even compared to high jump, that's really that's really interesting. I was I was just thinking about, and this is me being a little biomechanics nerd, but like Juan Miguel Echevarra jump in the farthest jump in 20, 30 years. And his last stride, it was like in, insanely long. And you think about the, his hamstring probably developed to, you know, to work with that stride, you know, like over time. And he yeah. probably has specific strength to fit his technique. And you think about the asymmetry in those run-ups. And that's interesting, that versus high jump. But I mean, I guess it makes sense. I, I, I'd love to see that data on, um, on a lot. I mean, you got you got my wheels turning, Jake. I love it. Uh, so uh, let's dig into. You mentioned um, eccentric mean relative power. Uh, how does that fit in with some of the things? Can you explain that a little bit? How does that fit in with some of the things that you were seeing out of your athletes? Yeah, I mean, you can definitely, especially if you spend too much time on Twitter these days, you can really go cross-eyed thinking about contraction types. And, and I don't know how many answers we have in that area, but I, I did find myself thinking quite a lot that you know all of these athletes have great push they have great great concentric ability but how do they absorb force and you know obviously reapply that force into the ground what's happening at ground contact um and you know we throw the term stiffness around a lot without great definitions um but it's definitely something i thought about a lot so while we didn't do drop jump tests i, I wouldn't that's something i'd like to integrate in the future um just in the counter movement jump looking at how they're 
how they're absorbing force. So we did cue all the athletes from day one is we want you to jump as high and as fast as possible because we knew that we were going to look at eccentric duration as a big, big metric for acute fatigue and just readiness to train. And we found that to be a really, really handy one. Um, but then looking if you know, if we knew that they were going to jump with that, you know, movement strategy, so to speak, how were they absorbing force and therefore preparing to produce force? I don't know if that's representative of how they're going to do that obviously in locomotion, mm -hmm. but it was something. You're listening to the Just Fly Performance Podcast, brought to you by Simply Faster. Oh, for sure. Yeah, it, it is interesting. Yeah, the difference in... A two, uh, this is something I think about. I mean, I don't have a force plate. I'd love to have one. But I think about if I had one, this is I would speculate on this. Like, what would I see that shows up on the force plate that changes when you get into locomotion, especially walking versus sprinting and and those types of things I, I, along those lines too so you had mentioned a little bit of concentric impulse and so with all the tools in your toolbox and all the things you've seen as well as traditional weight room movements if you were to like say okay look i got like three or four kpis for being fast uh in in the 100 meter dash based off what i've seen and observed is there a short list that you would put together you know, test test outs on the equipment weight room movements any sort of any sort of in the weight room jumps, other jumps or anything like that, that you would say, yes, I believe that this is, has a good KPI transfer to speed. Oh, it's an awesome question. Um, well, peak force on the force plate on the supine, uh, single leg push, um, and the isometric push definitely, definitely would be one. If I had to, place my bet on one metric on the counter movement jumps it would probably be rate of power development um i didn't see anyone who was really fast have a bad number in that it didn't correlate that well with proficiency in the 100 um but we didn't you know everyone who was good was good in that number and everyone who was not as good was not as good in that number um and if i had to pick a third number it wouldn't it would be maximum velocity Oh yeah. So I don't, I don't care if you set it up as a 100, if you set it up as a flying 20 or whatever, um, or you you know bust out the radar gun and do a 40. But the the maximum velocity, I mean, that is that is a massive part of the simple math equation. You know that that you're doing there is is what's the top speed that they can reach? And I'm amazed at how little we address that. It's why towing and overspeed running, I think it's just going to blow up in the future. Because if we're thinking about basic overload principle, how are we not addressing that to try and make people faster? That's a tangent. So I, I would say max velocity, rate of power development, and uh, supine single leg push. Cool. Oh, hey, that's that's awesome. I like I like it. You got three things, keeping it simple. But uh, I love it. It's just like the more I <laughs> the more I think about that single leg push, I'm just like, I, I loved it when I first saw it. I just, I don't have force plus. Like, ah, I guess I'll set it up. I just don't feedback and but i just think that that has so much potential I, well, I i read your article with alex in the autumn and texted him a little bit about it and chucked it into the program just to have a play around and enough athletes came back to me and said well i feel really bouncy now definitely don't take that out of the program and it never left the program the entire season and, and it was fun because i was over visiting gws a couple weeks ago in, in sydney and uh and had a slide about that and alex was just saying okay you know I'll send you a check, you know. Thanks, thanks for <laughs> off your stuff. Oh man, uh, that's awesome. I, yeah, no, I, you got me sold, Jake. I, 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 <laughs> I almost feel bad the first time around. I mean, it's not. Like I thought it was awesome, but I mean, it's also past my time of that was past my time of working with the university track as well at that point. But it just seems like it's just 
super cool principles. Uh, all right, so uh, moving on. So we work with track and field, but obviously it's not the only sport you've worked with. Uh, T, you've worked with rug a lot, or you've done a lot of work with rugby. And can you share a little bit about distinguishing some of the things that you are putting in a program to make track athletes fast versus uh, making rugby athletes fast? What's the same, and then but how does the program possibly differ? Sure. Yeah, I think. I think the competition schedule and the competition demands are the biggest biggest difference there um, and the intensity of competition, right? So if someone, if you're talking to someone Monday morning, Tuesday morning after a rugby match, them being physically beat up is your biggest problem. If you talk to someone one or two or three days after a track event, them just being neuromuscularly fried is your biggest challenge. So there's two totally different things to think about when building your schedule throughout the week. And I think that if... I think that's the main factor to work backwards from when planning training or when thinking about training factors. Um, with a track athlete, it's it's obviously all physical preparation, it's all physical development. So you're thinking, you know, okay, here are the ten elements that they need to, you know, run nine seconds. You know, where do we need to look at the two or three that they're amazing at and keep them amazing, and where do we need to look at the two or three that they're poor at and make them at least average? Whereas in rugby, for example, or any team sport, um, there's always this narrative about just keeping them healthy and maintenance and things like that. And it's true. It's also annoying. You know, we, we want them to physically develop as much as possible. And we're still stuck in this mode where we just get them crazy fit during preseason and we show these cool training videos and then we assume that we've ticked the box and we're getting them fit and then just keep everybody in a good mood for the next eight months. And I don't know if we're doing our athletes a good service with that. I don't necessarily have the answers either. But I think that's the big difference is, is while there is, you know, while we're not doing a ton of heavy lifting in season and track, we are still trying to physically develop them. We're trying to peak them and so on and so forth. Whereas in team sports, it's a ton of work and then, and then a bunch of maintenance and just keeping them healthy. So, um, yeah, it's a long-winded way of saying uh, the physical development is a lot more ambiguous in team sports. Sure. No, I, I totally hear you. It's such, I mean, such a complex thing. There's so many factors. I, what, um, in terms of like microdosing or training frequency, is there a big shift or, between the two that you've kind of seen or noticed? Um, I'd say that depends entirely on the coaches you're working with and their philosophy and, and the athletes and this and that. I mean, yeah, it, it comes back to, and this is, this is going to sound annoying and repetitive, but like every athlete is different. Honestly, Joel, I, I, I found I had to throw every assumption out the window with that stuff. Um, some of our skinniest and uh, uh, I don't want to say weak looking because you'd be mad at me for saying that, but uh, not as powerful looking athletes wanted to lift right before competition and knew that they would feel better if they were lifting heavy throughout the season. And some of our biggest and most powerful athletes, maybe it's because they were moving you know, such great loads. But they, we had to be very, very careful and much more sensitive with them around what they were doing in season. So, yeah, I think just everything is different with each athlete. Oh, yeah, right right on. Uh, so with rugby, too, especially, like, what are elements of what you would say if you're create, designing a program to, in, like, a team sports setting, rugby, maybe football, soccer, those types of things, what are some elements of building both fast and robust athletes? So trying to get the athlete as fast and powerful as possible but you also want them to be robust, injury-free. What would you say some core components or things to look at in building that program would be? Sure. I'd say the three things would be uh, maximum velocity exposure. Ah, oh, shoot, there's four. Maximum velocity <laughs> exposure, um, 
motor control and context specific running um structural integrity both in terms of isometrics and you know postural integrity and and eccentric work so i'll go backwards through those you know in a field where we have so few answers i've i've rarely seen anything as obvious and easy to address as you know we know we're pretty darn sure that Longer fascicles mean less injury risk, mean less soft tissue injury risk, and doing eccentrics lengthens fascicles, so let's do eccentrics. That, to me, anyone who argues that is doing it for the sake of, of attention or I don't know what. Um, so that's an easy, that's an easy element. Um, structural integrity, I think, again, you know, whether you're addressing breathing patterns or just you know, the so-called core strength postural integrity um, and doing isometrics, you know, whether that's building neuromuscular capability or tendons or what have you, I think isometrics work and are really valuable. Um, the third thing is, is, you know, motor specific or, um, you know, task specific running. So I think it's very easy to set up, you know, if it's rugby, for example, you know, you set up a defender on the 22 and you run in from halfway and you, you have half the field and you try and score while making only two two moves maximum. You, you know, you're working on running as fast as you can with an opponent with a ball, just setting up simple tasks and running within them. Um, you know, there's a lot of back and forth on this one and, and this area. I think a lot of people have gone overboard. A lot of people are using some of Franz Bosch's drills just to say that they do them. And I know Franz and I like him and I've learned a ton from him. Um, but people are kind of doing it half-baked. People get spooked by how simple that stuff is, and that's that's a good thing because we just need to set up tasks that can help people learn in the right environment and improve their tasks within you know certain constraints. It, anyways, um, and then the final element is running as fast as we can, as often as we can. I you know I think the most important thing we can do as practitioners is provide our athletes the ability to work on their skills as much as possible. And from a physical preparation standpoint, maybe the second best thing we can do is um, bring them to the pitch healthy and ready to get maximum velocity exposure as often as possible, um, at least twice a week, I would hope. So you're talking with that max V exposure, you're talking training outside of their actual practice, like trying to get them through a fly fly sprint or something like that, or, or just tr within the practice itself? No, hopefully within the sport practice. Okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, that's kind of what I was trying to confuse there a little bit as to, because, yeah, especially you see like the GPS now with the team sport and stuff like that. And I mean, I'll admit team sport and, and the technology revolving around that, uh, field sport especially isn't really my wheelhouse because I don't have a ton of exposure there myself, but you see like on Twitter, people will post the highest velocity from practice this week that you ran. And I'm like, mm -hmm. that seems like a pretty darn good motivator to be, um, not that people aren't motivated as it is and you know, your, whatever instincts you have when you're actually playing. But, um, I mean, that's, it shows that that's definitely max velocity training in and of itself. So yeah, I just had to follow up on that one a little bit. No, all good. And, and it definitely does, does come down to how the coaches want to design the drills and how the athletes compete and things like that. You know, some athletes, are incredibly skilled and smooth and it's really hard for them to hit top speed and and some just play out of their mind and hit it like four mm -hmm. times a week you know so there's a lot of dynamics around it but plain and simple i feel that exposure to maximum velocity is is as good of an injury uh, reduction method as we have available to us it's just not sexy enough for people to monetize it but i think that's that's the the, the key i think that's the most important thing we can do um so however you can get it you should. Oh, no, right on. I, I, yeah, I just even talked with uh, David Weck a couple of weeks ago. Is like money getting fast. You know, just sprinting as fast as you can doesn't 
make people that much money at the end of the day you don't you don't buy sprint spikes out of dick supporting goods you know it's just it's simple it's it's primal you know yeah <laughs> uh, and, and it's, it's the greatest stimulus we have exactly like, like you want to change body composition as an average joke go out and sprint and and tell me how you look in a month you know go out and sprint three times a week four times a week i mean it's it's obvious it's the greatest stimulus we have yeah, I think I think about it too. Like I think it was in the Franz Bosch coordination book. Like the the faster you go, the the more muscles can't compensate. Like the faster yeah. you sprint, the more your body has to coordinate muscles to work as intended, or at least groups of muscles close to intention versus a squat. You can have a myriad of compensation patterns, or something that's slower. You can compensate your way through it. Or even working with aquatic athletes, there's more compensation patterns there. That just because they're sport isn't quite as fast as at least that's my theory is their sport isn't quite as fast as getting on land and turning over five five uh, strides a second so uh yeah, yeah no no ex exactly and i and i think that's i think you've hit the nail on the head of one of the main reasons why um why some of those injury prevention or corrective exercise you know areas get so much backlash besides it being kind of silly and taking away from main training is that lower threshold stuff does not prepare us for high threshold stuff or higher risk stuff or higher stimulus stuff however you want to call it um that again i've said the term postural restoration institute like six times in 20 minutes already so you can tell i like that stuff and believe in it but we also have to get out and and tax the system at its very top end if we want it to be prepared for when that happens in competition oh yeah i couldn't agree more i I was just training with a buddy of mine um, yesterday who had spent some time with Jay Schrader, and, and that was one of the biggest things that they you know, taught in that system was you have to practice to the intensity that you will compete at and tons of just high-velocity yeah. stuff. And I, I love it's so simple, too. I was just doing, like, the most simple things to, like, borderline exhaustion. But it was, like, it was it was awesome. And what Actually, you mentioned this, and I, I'd love to go back to this, and especially in light of some of the other people I've had on the show, Alex and... Uh, mm -hmm. Angus, Angus Ross and Kel Dietz and, uh, but you mentioned the fascicle length being key and I'm, I've, I've seen the research as well. I'm a believer in that, um, in, in learning more about Jay's system. I learned, you know, that training at length is a critical component of that system. And so I've, mm -hmm. I'm always trying to figure out more ways and thoughts about muscle length and, and as well as eccentric training. And tell me about what's your approach to the eccentric component of the training equation. Um, I think it definitely depends on, <laughs> I need to stop saying this, but it does depend on the individual athlete. And their oh, response. No, for sure. No, um, for sure. You know, so, so some love Nordics, some are just terrified of it. And like, look, I, I roll my eyes as much as anyone, uh, at people who are, who are averse to Nordics. However, it's not worth it. If some athletes are just totally freaked out by them, find another way. Um, and definitely still training eccentrically, but find another way. Um, so I really liked, um, kind of like, um, easy up, slow down, um, reverse hypers. So single leg reverse hypers. So you, you know, if you have like a belt loop and you can put two feet in to raise it and one, one foot to lower it, I really like that one. Um, the, um, so the manual, uh, like prone, prone ones. So you take an athlete and you, you can take them from 45, you can take from 90 or just take them from about 20 degrees and, and push their heel into the ground and, and have them resist you as, as they're extending, um, at the knee. And that one, uh, we had a star high jumper who was very fragile on lifting who said that that made her feel better and more confident out there than any other exercise she's done. And it made her incredibly sore the first time she did it, obviously. <laughs> but that's um, those are those are probably the two that I really like outside of Nordics. I wouldn't I wouldn't um, pretend to have a ton uh, that I use, but those are the two main ones. 
You're listening to the Just Fly Performance Podcast, brought to you by Simply Faster. Cool. Yeah, that's something I've actually been thinking about recently, and now that you talk about it, it's like, especially with different athletes who respond to different things, like, and I've thought about this through some of Christian Thibodeau's work and the neurotyping ideas, too, I, and for me personally, and I haven't gotten to the point where I have used, like, big lift eccentrics with my athletes, and maybe it's just because every time I've personally done it, this is not, like, the best reason, and, and I'm always trying to think outside of myself, and I'm trying to look at trends and groups, and that's why I asked this question, too, but, like, Mm. using the big lifts for eccentrics carries a very heavy neurological price like if you're doing squats yeah. and 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 i mean shoot when i do, if i do eccentric overload squats even a few reps my vertical goes down three four inches in <laughs> a very short period of time and i'm just like sheesh like but i i that's got my wheels turning the last month like okay well, what about the peripheral stuff you know something that's like not a high cost to the nervous system like nordic hamstrings are not as hot nearly as high a cost as doing a heavy ass squat with way more than you could put up on the way up, you know, or like even that single yeah. leg hip extension you're talking about, like some of those, maybe the gold lies more uh, in terms of something that's more robust across the board for all athletes before you start getting into different people's response to the thing in general. Some of the, I guess you call it smaller movements at the critical junctions and critical muscles. Yeah. Yeah. And I think, um, I think you're right about range of motion as well, like, um, and, and whether something's bilateral or unilateral has a big impact. Because if we think about, like, we all know superstar athletes that have terrible lumbo-pelvic control, and, and if we're placing crazy demand on that where we don't need to, are we really getting what we should out of the, out of the weight room? Um, and, and, yeah, I'm with you there on, like, eccentric focus squats. Stuff like that exposes any kind of lack of postural integrity so much that it, I, I find it often just hurts to try and do stuff like that. Um, and one of the exercises that I, I took from your article with Alex was, um, they kind of like, uh, what, was, what would you call it? The yield, uh, switches. So the catches. So you'd be supine elevated on two parallel benches. Um, and then you kind of kick oh, yeah. up and catch yourself on another limb. And, uh, and that's one that just scares the crap out of you the first time you try it. But, <laughs> Um, once our athletes got the hang of it, they loved it. They said, wow, I can feel that I'm going to get a lot, lot stronger and a lot stiffer from this. Um, and that's not a long range of motion exercise, but there's definitely an, an eccentric element to it. Uh, yeah, no, that, that I just, it did look like it would take a few practice sessions before it's like, okay, I, you know, I'm fully comfortable in doing this with the maximal amount of power just because your legs are kind of straightened. And, and But I mean, it looks like it has an awesome potential to it, no doubt. All that stuff is really intriguing to me. Uh, and yeah. it, it makes me wish I was back in my early twenties being a track athlete again too. And, and, you know, <laughs> it, it's, it's, it's just such powerful stuff. And I like what Alex, and so I, actually I'm interested in your take on this, um, working as a, you know, in your work for uh, university SNC track and field or as SNC for university track and field, but just the thoughts on gen, so general strength, obviously this would be something that's pretty universal and people think about a lot, but like, in looking at everything that you have learned with the force plates, these high yield, high KPI type movements, how do you approach general strength? Uh, so just squat, squat cleans, uh, what have you, typical markers of strength. At what point do you start to put that lift in maintenance mode or remove it from the program? Or do you adjust athletes' programs? They may have more of one type of movement than the other. Um, knowing what you do, what's been your approach towards just the general battery of strength means, barbell means? Sure. Um, the big answer is I don't know. And I think that lifting is not necessarily as necessary as we would like 
to make it out to be. And I know I'm, I, I threatened to kill my own profession by saying that, but <laughs> I wonder if, if some of our athletes, their general strength shouldn't be gymnastics classes or things like that. Um, but knowing that we are weight room guys and are going to spend a lot of time in the weight room, fine. Um, the things that I learned and, and used this year, um, first one, like took it from uh, what Coach Salalosi taught me with with football players is, um, you know, when when a male can easily uh, rep squats of 2.2 times their body weight, might be time to just, you know, top that up once every couple weeks or once a month and spend more time on Olympic lifts because they are strong enough and we can move to just focusing on power and developing power. Um, so that was a marker I used with, with our bigger and, and stronger guys. Um, with women, it was a little bit trickier um, because strength development is, is, is obviously more complex with them. Um, I did find that uh, they didn't need to be topped up with strength as often as, as the males, that they, they had their numbers and they could come back and hit those numbers kind of at will. Um, so with us, it was more about, um, what they felt they needed on, on each day and, and just attacking that and getting gains wherever we could. I also found that Olympic lifts are not as difficult to teach as we make them out to be. I don't understand why there's still so much back and forth about that stuff, um, on Twitter and, and elsewhere. Like, if your athletes can do them, I think that they are quite useful. I don't think that they're that difficult to teach when you come across athletes who either morphologically or just because of their motor learning uh, ability or patterns is, is, is contraindicated, then don't do them. I mean, to me, that's a very, that's a very simple one. And then I made that decision pattern across all lifts. We, we split our men's sprints up um, between squat guys and deadlift guys very early on and stuck with that throughout the whole season. And I didn't see any adverse effects, you know, whether it's body type, preference, lifting history, whatever. It's some guys who love squatting and some guys who are not all about it and they were better at deadlifting. And we went with that the whole season and didn't switch just for the sake of switching. Yeah, I'm actually excited. I'm going to ask you about that in just a second, but I do want to make that comment that I 100% agree with you. Olympic lifting is not hard to teach. <laughs> I mean, I... I I'm not saying I'm like, I'm the the magician or whisperer too because I don't have I wasn't a competitive Olympic lifter. I just I've just watched some good videos here and there. I've figured out a few good progressions. I mean, I get swimmers who can barely even walk and chew gum on land or so people would say of them doing an <laughs> Olympic lift with good proficiency. I mean, the biggest gap is can you get the second pole good? Can you, you know, how well do you harness the reflex in the second pull? Some people just mm -hmm. have a hard time with that. But the general mechanics of it's a point where it's safe and pretty effective for you. is It's really not that hard to learn. I completely agree with you on that. Um, yeah. I, I mean, I guess if you had like a giant, if it's you and 40 athletes and, you know, I don't know, maybe. Like there's, you know, there's there's probably some restrictions if it, you don't have any help. Sure. So, you know, but yeah, yeah. I, I agree. Um, so, okay. So, I want to talk to you about this. Like, so, squat guys, deadlift guys, and... I think I've heard Stu McMillan talk about this this seminar. You know, people who prefer one or the other. When do you train weaknesses? When do you train strengths? Um, mm -hmm. Tell me, and, and even like um, you know, like Gray Cook, probably a deadlift guy because he he talks about train your deadlift. You know, keep, do your squat for health, right? Like, um, like that type of mentality. So how how did you go throughout that season? Did your deadlift crew like? Do they do goblet squats? Do they do any squatting pattern really at all? Or did they usually just kind of train, you know, like Allison Felix, just trained deadlift and went and ran really fast? Uh, how did you navigate that throughout the year? Um, everyone did quarter squats at some point. Everyone did concentric only squats at some point, both obviously more competitive phase. Um, 
but the rest of it, they, they stuck with what they enjoyed. Um, and you know, when we were following the traditional periodization models and, and building, you know, their max strength and then building power, they, um, they followed the lift that worked best for them. And, and I didn't, maybe I missed, maybe I missed something. Maybe I did them a disservice, but we didn't, you know, the deadlifters didn't top up squats and the squatters didn't, didn't pull from the grounds. Uh, and, and it went just fine. You know, maybe they got those gains elsewhere. They all did various single leg work. They all did all the isometrics together. It was just that they split on that. The other thing I should note, um, in that area is that once we got in season, uh, when we were doing Olympic lifts, which we we did as this first lift for most of our sessions, um, I told them to do the variation that they felt best doing, um, that they were going to get the most gains from and the most work from and the most confidence from. So some pulled from the floor, some pulled from hang, some pulled from the racks. That was that was very carefully undulated and whatever throughout the preseason. But once we got in season, I said, do what makes you feel good. As long as you're chasing numbers when you can, then we're happy. You know, that makes a lot of sense. I, I think a lot about like like you said, like what's, like what good is traditional lifting for a, a specific skill? Like once you get past a certain point, right? Like, but at the end of the day, I think the, those bilateral sagittal plane big lifts. I think what you're doing there is awesome because it's like you have to do what makes. If you don't do what makes you feel good, you're probably going to get hurt, and you're going to lift less weight, and your mm-hmm. bot, your neurologically probably not going to like it as much, and. Well, what's the goal of that stuff, right? It's, it's it's confidence and neural drive, and who cares if it's a squat or a deadlift? And so, as long as it's into your preferred movement pattern, and and you're doing the single leg stuff, and you're doing the quarters, and you're doing the hamstrings, and it makes a lot of sense to me. I I, I guess we it helps. Also, your answer helps me to think, or I think people listening out there to think. Well, why are we doing what we're doing? You know, are we? Yeah. You know, are we doing this? Is this athlete centered, or is this just program centered, or what my um my thoughts on what a program should be you know i'm a strength coach so i should we should squat we should deadlift we should clean we should do all these things and tickle these boxes and yeah just fitting into an athlete's preferred pattern if it's a sport like like track do you think that differs how would you change that would that change if it was a rugby or a field sport athlete um i do think track athletes are more in touch with their own bodies and they know what works for them a little bit Depending on your sport, field sport athletes are a little bit more of, all right, coach, I'm, I'm here, I showed up, tell me what to do. Um, so that definitely affects how you program. I mean, there were 18-year-olds with less than two years of training age that I would, I would say, what do you feel like doing today? And I would never do that with a team sport athlete. Um, but yeah, yeah, if that answers your question. Um, I, I get it. Like, yeah, I, I see a lot with swimmers too, super in touch with their body. Like it, it's like, well, swimming, especially cause you're sensory deprived too. And you're, when you're in your sport, like you see, you <laughs> yeah. look at the line at the bottom of the pool, you have a lot more time to think about stuff than <laughs> when you're out sprinting as fast as you can with, you know, it's, it's just different. I, but even track that I, I, I do agree with you. I think that, um, training, they, their sport is, is training, I guess, so to speak, you know, and, and where a team sport yeah. athlete, it's more play. It's a little more play and fun. I can see the disconnect there yeah. and how, how you and, can do that. Yeah. And, and to be honest, like with a, a team sport athlete, they just want to be fit and strong and good to go for their sport. Whereas in individual sports, they can tell you, well, you know, I'm not sure if I have enough push out of the blocks or, or, you know, I don't feel as bouncy at the top end or things like that. Yeah, yeah. And that's not every athlete. Like there's definitely every personality type in, in both. Um, but that, that's the pattern I would say. And, and to what you said a moment ago, Joel, like, I think that's something that every coach has to ask themselves every day. And something I had to check in with myself about mid season is, are we doing stuff because some guy 
with a big name out there is doing it? Are we doing stuff because I'm going to feel exposed if it's not in my program? Or are we doing stuff because it's going to help our athletes? It's not our job to look cool. It's not our job to have stuff that we can post on Twitter. You know, these athletes, like we talk about addressing weaknesses, and that's extremely important. But these athletes feel uncomfortable enough out there in their training. We don't need to make them look like fools in the weight room. We probably want to give them confidence in the weight room. We probably want them to feel good. And I'm not saying you know, blow smoke up their asses or give them fluffy exercises that will make them look good. I'm saying they should do stuff that's going to make them become powerful, but feel powerful as well. And so there's a time and a place to address weakness in the weight room. And like you said, that's the eccentrics, that's the breathing, that's the correctives, that's the pre-work. Um, maybe that's some of your single leg work. That's when you put in Turkish get-ups, things like that. But there, you know, I feel like the big rocks should be things that are going to go well. All oh, right on. Um, any thoughts or ideas on, say you got a more of a squat type person on having them do like a different pattern for the first month in the year or something like that. Like, you know, let's work in your deadlift for like a month and then let's do everything else. Or do you do any, anything like that? Like a weakness building for a short period of time versus their strengths? No. And maybe I should. I mean, yeah, I, I mean, I, I don't have experience even doing the, you're a squat person, you're a deadlift person. I'd love to actually know you talk about it, but like, um, I mean, I, I have to an extent, but not to the extent that you have. And but there, therein also, I haven't done the weakness building in the in in that sense. So I'm, yeah, I was just curious. But it, yeah, it makes sense. It's an it's an interesting concept, at least. We we did we did change up in the preseason uh, grips and stances and things like that, um, but they didn't necessarily change the exercise. Yeah, cool, man. Uh, last question before our time's up today. Um, thoughts on velocity based work, use of tendos, gym wares, those types of things. Um, any practical considerations on that in the weight room from what you've learned? You're not going to like my answer here, though. I've talked enough smack in my own podcast that people will know what's coming. Uh, wait, how are we editing? This is on uh, iTunes. Yeah, I, I, th I think it's masturbation. <laughs> I do. I, I think I think it's I think it's it's trying to show complexity. Um, now, let me go back and try and preface this. OK, I think for competition, for getting athletes to say, oh, he, well, he didn't, he didn't one meter per second, I wanted to do two, like, excellent, really good. If you have a leaderboard, it absolutely has its place. Um, if you are, if you have super fine-tuned veteran athletes and you need to know their status that day and you want to do relative intensities and stuff, absolutely has its place. If you only have two coaches for 40 athletes in the room and you're spending half of your energy pulling strings out of boxes, you are not doing a service to your athletes. Um, now, there's other products out there, and, and like Gym Aware certainly has its place, um, but I just think there are so many things we should be doing before we get that involved. I also think loading is way overcomplicated. I don't understand why we can't have an athlete do as much as they can, um, and if it's for one rep this week, they can do it for two reps next week and three reps the following week, and then you, and then you add more weight. You know, <laughs> like I, I don't know why we are doing cartwheels to try and to try and make complex loading. And I don't even think we need to do that much submaximal loading. Like like we spoke about, there's a time and a place for power work. But I think then you prescribe exercises that involve philosophy. You don't necessarily have to go at 70% here and 80% there. I think most of the time, let the athlete relax and stop thinking about so much stuff and lift something as heavy as they can or push something as hard as they can. And when you need to adjust or you want them to move faster, practice other qualities, then you give them exercises that involve that. I, I understand. I, I think I the point where I definitely draw the line and completely agree with you where it's like, okay, we're lifting in 
in this zone, this strength zone, and this speed, and this strength zone, this speed. And I think it can be, whenever we can simplify things, it's always better, you know, like, and simplify what we're trying to get out of the weight room. I, I do like it, like you said, if there's a leaderboard, if you can use it for motivation, or even I've found if an athlete has a propensity to try to lift more than they should in an Olympic movement and tying them down mm -hmm. to a number, something yeah. like bringing in a feedback and even more like the research too is like the jump squats right it's the it's the velocity stuff in the weight room anyways more so than the strength stuff as far as i i think i'm familiar with the research in terms of what you're getting out of it it's the stuff that's more closer to organic reflexive human movement than a bilateral sagittal um sure sure and and along that line, like we have to be proficient as coaches to be able to look at someone doing it clean and saying, no, I'm, that's not good enough. Take off five pounds. Like we we have to be yeah, able to I do. Agree. We, you know, if if we if we need a number to back it up to kind of win an argument with a stubborn athlete, that's fine. Um, but we should we should be able to do it ourselves first. Um, and and I think yeah, I th look. I think if you have if you're taking. Uh, 100 kilograms and everyone is benching it and you know for three reps and you're having a contest to see you can move it the fastest because whatever you're in a power phase awesome great time to have something like that out um but we don't need, need to be setting up on 20 platforms when there's only two coaches on the floor yeah no, i totally respect that i think that's totally fair and i uh, i've always wondered that myself i didn't even do velocity-based work or I, or I should just say use a tendo i didn't use a tendo until i was uh, 28, 29, I found it, you know, it helped motivate some female athletes in Olympic lifts a little bit more. But outside of that, yeah. I just, it, it, it's, it can definitely add layers of complexity to areas that it's not needed, like you said. Um, so I think that's cool, man. Uh, okay, cool. Well, hey, I, th I think that's about all the time we had for this podcast, Jake, but I'm glad we could get this in this morning. Um, just love talking to you. It's just really cool sitting down and, and hearing about all the things that you're doing that, are helping athletes get faster and better and they also have a qua uh, a qualitative or quantitative both probably uh, also that quantitative backing behind it and harnessing technology that we um in the direction this field needs to go so um really cool thanks for talking today no thank you for your time joel and uh thanks for having me on looking forward to chatting more in the future that does it for another episode this is your host joel smith signing off i love that episode by the way jake is the man i just learned a lot and i think that it really connected a lot of dots for me i hope it did for you as well or that at the very least you had some new ways of seeing things and thinking about things and it's just cool i like these landmark speed weight room transference exercises really enjoy this stuff so anyways we'll be back with another uh great guest next week for episode 110 in the meantime, don't forget to visit our sponsor, simplyfaster.com, suppliers of high-end training technology. Also, if you enjoyed this podcast, what we do here at Just Fly Sports, don't hesitate to hop on iTunes, Stitcher, and shoot us a rating. I really appreciate it. We'll see you guys next week.